This is exactly right. We all have a chance to do different, to do better every single moment that we wake up, every single interaction we have, uh, every single word that we say is a chance to uh, turn the page, break a cycle, and ultimately it's us together. Me, you, uh, your vibrant community and beyond, it's us together who can fight for and imagine uh, a better world in which more human beings are loved, not for who they should be, but for who they are. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan, your host. And let me tell you a little bit about our mission at Parent Footprint. Our mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. Further... And most importantly, we believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is called Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines with Jonathan Mooney. I'm so fired up to have Jonathan back on the show. We did what we thought was a very meaningful show a few years back called No More Shame, The Power of Living and Learning Differently, which is to be continued with his latest book and extensive life experiences. Jonathan's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, HBO, NPR, ABC News, New York Magazine, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. And he continues to speak all across the nation about neurological and physical diversity, inspiring those who live with differences and advocating for change. His books include The Short Bus and Learning Outside the Lines. And of course, today we are focusing on his latest book, Normal Sucks. Jonathan, welcome back, my friend. Yeah, brother. Thanks so much for uh, not just having me, but more importantly, doing the good work you do out in the world. I am a, uh, I'm a big fan. (laughs) <laughs> the feeling is mutual. And uh, I've just, I've been thinking about this. We've been, we've been talking about doing the show for a long time. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it. And that's led me to the um, awareness. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so I, I want, let's start with what comes to you first when we think when this notion of normal sucks well i mean first of all what a what a subtle title is what comes <laughs> comes to me first uh you know it's kind of uh, you're not supposed to say this if you're an author but uh you don't even really need to read the book the title, the title kind of <laughs> says it all uh, this is the cliff notes we've all been looking for just the title and we're done Done. Two words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's all you. 
<laughs> all you got to know. Um, and, and, you know, in all seriousness, um, it is kind of that that simple. Um, but like anything uh, that on the surface seems simple, when you dig a little deeper, uh, it's uh, much more uh, complicated and um, uh, challenging than we think. Um, you know, this idea of a normal kind of looms over all of us. You know, there's a, a philosopher I admire named Michel Foucault who uh, said that the judges of normality are ever present everywhere and that we're in the society of the doctor judge, teacher judge, social worker judge. And it's on their uh, judgment that we base our value as human beings. And I think that that is uh, profoundly true. Um, I think we judge ourselves uh, based on our ability to meet uh, a set of, of artificial and cultural norms about our brains and bodies. Uh, and then I think at times um, our children are judged uh, by their ability to meet those arbitrary uh, and fictional standards uh, and not only judged, but uh, deeply wounded. So I went on a mission to try to understand the origins of that uh, idea uh, and more importantly, uh, what we can do about it as uh, parents, as educators, uh, as professionals, and, and ultimately as a, as a world. And the big question, what did you find, Jonathan? What can we do? You're keeping these pretty broad, brother. I, like, I know, I'm, 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 I'm going to bring, bring it down soon, but it's just like, I'm just going with it. I'm going with it. Just, just uh, throw the, 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 big, the big existential ones out there. Yes, uh, these right are the big right, ones. Right, right at me. Well, well first, um, you know, uh, normal has a history, uh, not a history of discovery, as we like to think, but a history of invention. Um, it's not like oxygen um, that we find out exists and is sort of universally true. Uh, it's a construct that we've created. Um, it's a construct that emerged in the uh, mid-19th century. Um, it emerged within the context of standardization and industrialization and specifically the rise of statistical thought uh, as a way to apply uh, averages uh, to social problems and try to uh, norm uh, the population. Uh, and it was put to really nefarious usages. You know, it was embedded in our uh, public health discourse. Uh, it was embedded in uh, our built environment uh, in the way that uh, architecture designed uh, buildings in the way that clothes were manufactured. The whole notion of a medium size is the medium of a distribution curve uh, coming from statistics. Uh, and it was embedded in our uh, education approaches, uh, in our schooling, uh, sort of valuing the mythical middle of that bell curve at the expense of anyone who deviated from it. Uh, and ultimately, it was put to use um, uh, to try to rid the world of so-called defectives in the uh, eugenics uh, era. Uh, this is a little-known history. I'm not sure why do we don't talk enough about this uh, as a culture, especially as we wrestle with being more inclusive and equitable uh, and just in our present moment. Uh, but in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s and beyond, there was a movement of scientists, reputable 
charitable foundations, the U.S. government to uh, eliminate their word defectives from our population that included uh, marriage restrictions, included forced sterilization, and ultimately included plans for, again, their word, uh, extermination through institutionalization and other means. So it's got a really deep uh, cultural history, uh, and we need to unearth that, we need to name it, and we need to understand that that doesn't uh, have to be the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about others. Uh, There's something we can do about that. You have some personal experience with this classification system and being compared to normal, um, which drives a, a lot of your work and passion. Yeah, it's the center of what this is all about. You know, um, I, I remember when I was, uh, you know, uh, in third grade, thereabouts, uh, I went through a whole set of testing uh, because I had struggled in school. You know, I was the kid who didn't sit still, spent a lot of the day chilling out with the janitor, was the kid who struggled with reading, spent a lot of the day hiding in the bathroom to escape reading out loud. And um, when me and my mom uh, were finally called into the school psychologist's office, uh, it was literally like somebody had died. You know, Uh, it was like we were getting the test results back and there was, uh, you know, soft jazz music playing in the background. Uh, There was a box of tissues on the table, you know, Uh, all the mirrors were covered because we were there to sit Shiva for the death of my normality, you know, (laughs) and we we treat uh, different as deficient and uh, we pathologize a whole continuum of differences and call them uh, deficiencies, sicknesses, etc., Uh, And subsequently, um, the message for those folks is that they're not just not normal, uh, but abnormal. And that's a really Mm -hmm. important distinction Mm -hmm. because in the uh, arc of uh, normal as a social construct, uh, it was built on the backs of classifying whole swaths of human beings as abnormal uh, and pathologizing those human beings. Uh, And I really mean whole swaths of human beings. Obviously, folks with atypical brains and bodies were sort of ground zero of both the eugenics movement and also of classifying humans as abnormal. And by the way, abnormal is not value neutral. You look it up in the dictionary and it means to uh, deviate uh, in an unhealthy way. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm quoting from a dictionary definition. Uh, And then uh, women were classified as abnormal and um, whole groups of of minorities all around the world were, were called abnormal deficient and a sort of medical power surrounded them. Uh, now that's not to say that, you know, I didn't have legitimate challenges. I certainly did. Um, very specific challenges with reading and sitting still, but it is to say that those challenges didn't have to be inherent deficiencies. And really what I struggled with more than anything wasn't the challenges, the the reading, the spelling, the sitting still. Really what I struggled with existentially was being made to feel deficient as a human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the struggle that I hear all around the country over 20 years uh, from from young folks uh, and beyond uh, the idea that their differences make them deficient. And that's what I'm trying to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That's so key. Uh in my office, people say, you know, what should we focus on? And the first thing I, I often say is uh, getting the light back on or keeping the light on in your child's eyes. 
right? It's like, it's how that they feel they matter, that they feel they have purpose, that they feel they are capable. And uh, so often, unfortunately, because they are not fitting in and because they are struggling, they are feeling all of the opposites of what we want them to feel like. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. Um, You know, that is the the first step, um, both in my own sort of internal journey, you know, um, you know, I, I told you briefly about that meeting where, um, uh, the testing results came back and Jonathan mm-hmm. was dyslexic and I was, you know, ADD. And I remember leaving that, um, office and turning to my mom and saying, Hey mom, am I normal? And, and my mom, you know, said normal sucks, you know, <laughs> and that's the origin of, of both the title of the book, but, but more importantly, the, the beginning of resistance, uh, and the beginning mm-hmm. of healing, uh, because that is a message and was a message for me of being loved, not for who I should be, but being loved for who I am. Uh, and my mom even took it even further. You know, it, it was about getting that light back on. Um, and she was a ferocious advocate for me in many different contexts in many different ways. Uh, but it was ultimately, uh, her advocating to uh, change the environment around me and not the kid. Um, she was an advocate way, way before these terms were used for accommodations. She was an advocate for uh, changing the context and not the person, uh, not making the you know round peg, uh, square peg fit the round hole. She mm-hmm. thought that every single shape of peg had value as they were, and it was our moral and ethical obligation as institutions to change the environment to fit the multitudes of human beings that we know are paradoxically normal. Mm-hmm. So, you, you this runs the idea of labels and the labels that you got and the labels that my kids got, the labels that I think I would have been maybe helped with if I got, which leads to this, is like there's this fine line between classifying people and labeling them and helping them understand why they think and do as they do so they can understand themselves in order to not only survive, but thrive, right? And gosh, we um, our center, what I've been doing for years is helping to label and classify and yet struggling because... It's like, should we do it? How should we do it? How do we make this helpful? I mean, so I struggle with that daily. Um, and you have a lot to say about this. Yeah, I wrestle with it too. Um, I mean, look, it, it is better to be um, dyslexic than stupid. In terms exactly. Of exactly. Right. It's better to be, you know, um, ADD than it is to be crazy or bad. So... Mm-hmm. There is a lot of, um, you know, healing and transformation in, you know, reframing states of being that had historically been uh, moralized. You know, in the arc of this work, you know, we spent uh, a lot of human history moralizing these things as character flaws. Um, And there was uh, it was a huge step forward to replace moralization with seeing it through the lens of of biology, seeing it through the lens of, of, um, 
for lack of a better word, pathology. That mm-hmm. was a, a step uh, forward. But the problem is that we kind of get, you know, trapped uh, in that um, because uh, to pathologize oneself to get your individual needs met seems a little bit like the sort of deal with the devil. Um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, does somebody have uh, learning disabilities? Does somebody have a disability? Are they a person with a disability? And where I've sort of landed on that is uh, I think people experience disability in contexts that are built for the myth of the same. Uh, and that uh, sounds maybe a little bit like sort of, you know, shuffling uh, deck chairs on on the Titanic, uh, distinction without a difference. But it does matter because when we say somebody experiences a, a learning disability, attentional disability, um, it puts the onus on the interaction interaction between person and context. Mm-hmm. And then it helps us understand that there are biological predispositions for certain behaviors. There are contexts in which those biolo- biological predispositions are shamed and uh, marginalized. Uh, but it raises the question of, well, maybe the context should change and not the person. So I think our, our future is to, you know, name uh, clearly without um, pathologizing the continuum of human experiences. Uh, mm. I think it's more helpful to kind of uh, go beyond the sort of label and say, well, Jonathan struggles with reading, you know, not because he's dumb, but because not every brain is wired to read. Or Jonathan struggled with anxiety, which I did deeply, uh, because um, anxiety is a is a, uh, a a part of the continuum of human experiences, and in some ways has played a evolutionary advantageous role in the advancement of the human species. Or uh, Jonathan struggles with depression or autism or whatever that may be. All of those things have existed uh, for a long, long time, uh, and those predispositions to feel anxious. Um, have, um, uh, you know, uh, intense moods to struggle with reading, to have a hard time sitting still. Let's name those. Let's name those as biologically based. Let's name those um, as things to work on. But then let's also say it's the environment that disables, uh, not intrinsic to the kid. And let's start thinking about, you know, things we can do for individual children, of course, to manage um, some of those uh, uh, neurodiversities uh, in their own life, but let's ultimately start talking about what environments can do to be places that don't just work for some humans, but ultimately work for for all people. Absolutely, and you've spent a lot of time in a lot of places of the country consulting on these environments, both um, in the classroom, school setting, and also in the workplace. What what have you found are the the characteristics of the environments that are successful in doing what you're proposing? I'll give you a couple tactical things and then I'll give you the overarching uh, core value that I think is uh, a prerequisite for doing this kind of work. You know, from a a tactical perspective, um, active learning, active working, you know, this whole notion that human beings are at their optimal sitting still at a desk uh, in any context, school or work is just uh, blatantly false. Um, I, you you know the neuroscience research better than I do. Uh, all 
a listener has to do is pick up the beautiful revolutionary book by John Rady called Spark uh, mm-hmm. as a starting mm-hmm. point. Um, we're not wired to sit still all day long. That's not what helped us survive the savannah. You know, it's just not, it's just not, it doesn't work for us, you know? So places that, that really embrace that um, are, are doing right by, by the neurodiverse. Uh, providing multiple ways to um, uh, get information. You know, for me, back in the day, it was uh, books on tape, you know? Uh, thing was so big, uh, you had to put it into a backpack and plug it into a generator, you know? <laughs> but now we got uh, the world's, information in digital format so we can do text to speech and speech to text just making that um, a core commitment for any human to have the right to get information and share information in different formats matters uh, a lot Uh, and then ultimately beyond the tactical things of active learning and multiple modes for getting and and showing information really the the bottom line of inclusive environments for people with atypical brains and bodies is inclusive environments have to elevate this conversation away from sort of compliance with either the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, or the IDEA. And they have to really shift the conversation away from, you know, special services for those people with problems to a bigger conversation about diversity. You know, one of the things that I am Uh, most um, concerned about is we do not include in corporate diversity policies and also in many localized diversity statements of people with atypical brains and bodies. We don't include disability in our diversity initiatives. Give you a good example of that. You know, my uh, alma mater went to Brown University, deep commitment to inclusion, did a whole institutional audit about diversity on campus, spent a ton of money on the audit, spent a ton of money on uh, remedying the findings, a 200-page report plus, and the word disability in this conversation around diversity was mentioned zero times. So inclusive environments have to elevate the experience of people with atypical brains and bodies to the conversation around diversity, the conversation around inclusion, the conversation around equity, and ultimately a conversation around social justice. Because for too long, we put the problem in the person, and the problem's not in the person with differences. It's in the social context around them. And talking about this as a diversity issue is a way for us to reframe, reorient, and ultimately change environments and systems to be more inclusive for all people. Amen, brother. Do you guys all get that? <laughs> Did everyone get that? The problem is not in the person, it is in the context, right? And we're always focusing on the person rather than understanding the person in the context and fixing and altering and changing the context to be maximally beneficial to all types of human beings. Okay, a lot of parents listening. What do you say? What advice do you have for parents of neurodiverse children, teenagers, individuals? You know, first, you know, we have to have um, a, a balanced view of, you know, 
the people that we love. And, and this is this is for parents and their children. This is for, frankly, I think, uh, any of us in any relationship with the neurodiverse. Um, and, and I say balance because right now we're sort of out of balance. You know, there's a deficit model that surrounds uh, the experience of young people with with different brains and bodies. Um, it's deeply ingrained in our language and it's deeply ingrained in our processes and procedures. You know, I, when I was a kid, I had uh, an IEP. And uh, for those listeners who don't know an IEP, it's called an individualized education plan. You know, got to be real about that thing. Uh, NSA, KGB got nothing on the IEP, you know. <laughs> they, 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 they have been doing uh, deep intel on me my whole life, you know, flying unmanned drone missions over my house. and uh, Unsuccessful, it not, uh, yeah. as it may be, yes. <laughs> it is not good news in that file, you know, and uh, uh, it's a deficit document. There's a, a, a good uh, friend of mine, mentor of mine named Thomas Eyre, who is the former uh, secretary of special education at the U.S. Department of Education, now a professor at Harvard. Uh, he's done research on these files, and his research shows that it's relentlessly deficit-oriented, you know. Uh, at times, for every one strength that's mentioned, in a diagnosis, uh, psychological assessment, uh, response to intervention, whatever you want to call it, there are 25 weaknesses. And nobody thrives when we have a deficit view of them. And so we got to flip that script. You know, we got to be relentlessly committed to uh, what is right. Um, we, we have to be relentlessly committed to naming and celebrating the good in our children, in our spouses, in our coworkers. And in the person that we meet on the street, you know, it has to be a moral and ethical commitment uh, to the idea that everybody has something right with them and everybody has a right to have an asset based identity uh, and to have the world see the good in them and not just the bad. So. What do you wish you heard? What What did you wish someone now, first of all, having knowing you as I do and having heard you tell stories about your mom and what an avid um, advocate and just kick-ass bodyguard she always was for you. Um, she told you a lot of very important messages. So I guess this is a two-part question. What did she tell you that you, that you, that you just held on to? And what is also something that you wish you could have heard from a caring adult? Well, my mom, you know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, kind of kick-ass advocate bodyguard is the right word, you know. Uh, she wasn't a tall woman. She was like 4'11", you know, on a good day in high heels on her tippy toes. And she has a, a very funny, squeaky voice like Minnie Mouse. And she curses like a truck driver, you know. And if you were somebody doing wrong uh, by her son, you did not want cursing Minnie Mouse in your office, you know, uh, but that's where she was, you know, and, and we knew she was there because uh, every dog in the neighborhood was running away, you know, <laughs> only, only bats could hear her high pitched uh, obscenity. And uh, the message my mom gave me was, uh, you're not the problem, you know, um, she, she said that she lived that she embodied that 
Um, the problem is uh, the narrow definition of learning. The problem is the school desk. The problem is the reading groups. Uh, the problem is a narrow definition of intelligence that leaves so many people out. The problem is a set of institutional practices. Uh, and that really, you know, saved me. You know, I struggled. I don't want listeners to think that uh, it was a, a clear path to uh, being a writer, being an advocate, going to Brown University. You know, I had a plan for suicide when I was uh, 12 years old. You know, I left school for a time when I was in sixth grade. Uh, but what really kept uh, a fragile and tenuous sense of self from breaking entirely was that core belief uh, that you're not the problem. Now, some I wish I would have heard. It was said to me by my mom, but I didn't I didn't hear it. Uh, mm -hmm. and this goes to your latter question. Something I wish I would have been given um, uh, from a different uh, a meaningful adult in my life. Because, you know, you get to the point, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners may be at this point, where, you know, you're a parent, you're a mom or dad, you're a caregiver, and you're like the Peanuts character. You know what I mean? It's like you're just – it's like wah, 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 and, and, right. and, kids, and kids don't listen. And this is the essential role that other meaningful adults can play is to be a voice that's coming outside of that bodyguard, outside of that safe and nurturing space. And sometimes in your journey, that voice has even more credibility. So I wish I would have heard from somebody like that, that I had a right to be angry at what mm. was happening to me. Mm. You know, and that's a really important point, you know, like um, I'm asked all the time by, 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 by parents, um, uh, caregivers say, Hey, you know, look, there's all these accommodations for my kid and my kids in high school, but my kid won't use them. And that's a very, very common phenomenon, right? And, and the origin of that phenomena is one, uh, often these accommodations are given in a stigmatizing way, you know? Um, so why, if you're 16, would you self-select to identify yourself as somebody with a quote unquote problem? And the other origin of that is the accommodations are presented as a way to uh, fix you, uh, opposed to changing the environment that was not built for you. That, again, is a really important distinction. And so uh, I wish I would have heard, hey, you know what? You have a right to be pissed, not at yourself, but for what happened. You know, it's not cool that somebody uh, chills out with the janitor in the hallway. That's not all right. It's not all right that somebody is bullied because they – uh, um, don't make eye contact when they play on the playground. That's not all right. And that's not just uh, a, a tragedy. It's actually a crime that people with neurodiversities are ex exceedingly marginalized in our society. And the way to react to that is not with uh, charity, not with sympathy, but ultimately with anger to say, you know what, that's an injustice. Mm -hmm. And we should fight against that injustice. And individuals should be angry, not at themselves, but at that injustice. You know, a good friend of mine, amazing, amazing uh, writer, poet, activist uh, that all your listeners should check out. His name is Roberto Rivera. Uh, he likes to say, because he had a very similar experience to mine, he likes to say that you should take your, your pain and turn it into propane. To hmm. turn it into fuel, right? Mm -hmm. To fight against that injustice. And I think uh, I could have heard that much earlier in my life than I did.
yeah, validating the validating those feelings of hurt, of anger, of injustice. Um, I think is is so huge, and uh, totally agree. How many times I've heard in my office and in my own house, like I'm not going to do that. I'm not taking that accommodation. Like, like why would we want? Like, why would we want to stand out as needing something more because it's framed as there's something wrong with us and we're yeah. deficient? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Okay, we're 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 almost we're almost to the parent footprint moment question. Um, but I'm going to ask you the one thing question first. One thing parents, particularly parents of neurodiverse children, often are dealing with a lot and it can be overwhelming and life is busy and there are a lot of stressors going on in our world today and everyone's doing their best. If they were going to do one thing and start that one thing today, what would you suggest they do? Focus on what's right, you know, to, to have a conversation um, at the dinner table uh, before drop off, uh, after school, at bedtime, that just relentlessly flips the deficit model nice. to talk about um, the good that they see in their child and to uh, commit every day to uh, talking about three good things before uh, the one uh, bad thing and to getting balance back into the way that the neurodiverse see themselves because everybody has something right with them. And the path to thriving is not fixing what's wrong with you, but scaling, building, and celebrating what's right with you. Yes. Okay. Focus on what is right. That leads us to the parent footprint moment question, which you have been waiting for. Okay, Jonathan, tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. You know, um, me and uh, my father uh, did not uh, get along. Um, You know, my father was somebody that I always thought was ashamed of me. Um, he was the, what's wrong with you? Why don't you sit still? Uh, why don't you do better in school? And, um, my father was also, um, um, a, an alcoholic for my entire, uh, childhood and a substance abuser of many forms and brought a lot of chaos into, um, the house, uh, multiple bankruptcies, um, precarious financial situation throughout all of my childhood. And uh, subsequently, that chaos um, and that um, sense of shame um, fractured our relationship. And so uh, I went through a period of um, at least five or six years uh, recently in which I did not talk with him, speak with him, in which he did not have any interaction with my three children. And um, about six months ago, we um, reconnected 
and um, and I came to understand two things: one, that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, <laughs> and uh, what I mean by that is my father um, was shamed for his differences. My father uh, had his ears taped back um, on his head because they were too big. Uh, my father grew up in a very uh, Irish immigrant Catholic household and had a nun named Sister Payne. Uh, my father was consistently made to feel ashamed of who he was uh, and subsequently perpetuated that cycle, which is a cycle that neurodiverse uh, moms and dads and caregivers are often caught in. And my father, um, he, he uh, lost a lot of his life to that shame. And I wish I could say that, you know, we had a um, mea culpa moment uh, and we kind of Set and hashed it all out, <laughs> but but we we really didn't, you know. Um, but what I learned in that moment that I uh, will carry with me as an individual and as a parent, both, is that I can forgive. You know, I can forgive. Um, I can have empathy. Uh, it doesn't excuse behavior. But it means that that uh, cycle can end with me. And that's a choice that I can make and will make and will continue to make uh, for the rest of my life. That's awesome, Jonathan. I'm, I'm taken. I'm, uh, I'm glad you had that moment with him and uh, can, cannot begin to imagine the complexity <laughs> of emotions uh, and beyond in, in that reunification, so to speak. But the biggest thing that you mentioned here, uh, oh, among the biggest things you mentioned is, is forgiveness, uh, like awareness and forgiveness, uh, which does not mean excusing and um, how hard it is for people to get to a place where they have been wronged and they have been hurt, abused, and to come to a place of acceptance and forgiveness to allow freedom and health to be unchanged, unchained to those to be able to do it differently in their own lives and in their lives as parents to their children. Thank you. Hey, Dan, I, I, you know, I so appreciate you, man. And I appreciate everything that you're about um, because we all have a chance to do different, to do better every single moment that we wake up, every single interaction we have, uh, every single word that we say is a chance to uh, turn the page, break a cycle, and ultimately it's us together, me, you, uh, your vibrant community and beyond. It's us together who can fight for and imagine uh, a better world in which more human beings are loved, not for who they should be, but for who they are. 
I couldn't have said it any better. I usually wrap up with some uh, some quotes <laughs> from from uh, the guest, and uh, you just you just said it. You just said it, Jonathan. And uh, grateful for the work you're doing, and you really are. Uh, you're a missionary. You're out there. Um, I wish you some. Uh, I wish you less travel along the way, and know that it is a necessary part of spreading the important word. I will say that um, parents listening. Uh, the 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 simple because Jonathan and I like things simple is the statements of you're not the problem and focusing on what is right are just key guiding principles to to share with our neurodiverse kids um, and actually all the humans in our life. Jonathan, tell people where uh, obviously where they could find the book, um, their blogs. There's a documentary. Um, you got lots of stuff. Uh, where can people track you? Yeah, just you can come find me on all the social stuff. It's just the Jonathan Mooney on all the different social platforms. Uh, and then folks can find information about where I'll be speaking, um, all the good work that, that I'm a part of in community and fellowship with others uh, at jonathanmooney.com. Very simple, people, at jonathanmooney.com. That concludes yet another very meaningful uh, conversation with Jonathan Mooney. Thank you all for listening to our show today. Normal sucks. How to live, learn, and thrive outside the lines. Check us out at parentfootprint.com, www.parentfootprint.com. We have Parent Footprint Awareness training designed to help you parent with purpose, awareness, and intention. Be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself, the same guiding question I ask you to ask yourself daily. What footprint do you want to leave? <laughs>